It's so good to be able to come together this Lord's Day morning to look out over this audience and appreciate all of us have been blessed the way that we are. So good to see our membership and our visitors have come our way, and we hope each one is truly able to say as we conclude our service, it has been a tremendous blessing indeed to have been here, that we've each been able to worship God in truth and in spirit. As we come to this particular portion of the service today, I think it would be entirely appropriate to express a word of appreciation and tremendous consideration of those men that filled in for, for me last Sunday morning. Did a really, really amazing job. Bible study class, the lessons they were delivered, everything done in just such a way in which to bring the particular glory and honor and exaltation to the name of God. We indeed, our elders here, continue to be so thankful for the men of this congregation and the willingness to use their talents in the way that they do. As we come to this part of our service this morning, you'll notice on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson probably already indicates a, a degree of consideration that is not one of the most common of the themes, I suppose, of sermons. However, it is one, I believe, as you and I shall discover, it is found in the Word of God, and therefore it's worthy of our attention this morning. Some very brief introductory remarks might well be these. We are so very well aware as we read the pages of the Word of God that the concept of fellowship is of basic and fundamental significance. The concept of fellowship, and we will develop that a bit in just a moment, is a very far-reaching thing. So much so that not only is it by itself a tremendous and remarkable blessing, but with it comes an amazing responsibility. A responsibility that must be looked upon with care and that must be carried out with a great deal of diligence. Surely, as you come near the close of that then, we will look at both sides of that beginning in a somewhat abbreviated series of lessons beginning this morning. Today and next Sunday, we will cast the spotlight on this whole topic and idea surrounding fellowship and withdrawal of such a thing. What does the Bible say about it? What are some practical matters that often are raised that can often present challenging issues concerning the very thing? We'll try to look at all of that, and today, again, we'll begin the discussion, but certainly it's entirely fair to begin it like this. The whole concept and matter as we discuss this notion of fellowship, it seems to me must be grounded in a thorough understanding of the family of God. I believe each of us, as we mature, we come to appreciate, of course, a great deal of understanding relative to a family. We appreciate our physical family. We, of course, love our parents, and we come to realize the sacrifices they've made for us and the love they directed toward us. But by the same token, being a member of a family does carry with it some personal responsibilities and obligations. Why don't we look at this slide, really focusing the spotlight upon the spiritual attributes of this. In Acts chapter 2, on the very birthday of the church, as that chapter closes, we read this, this interesting passage, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. The actual Greek text reminding us that God, the very Son of God, was adding to the church on a daily basis those that were being saved. Those that were obeying the gospel by virtue of being baptized into Christ. You'll notice they were added to something, to the church. As you begin to notice, that word church that there appears in the Greek text is the word ekklesia. 
E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. And that word means those that are called out of the world, called out of the fellowship with the devil into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They are thus extremely highly exalted in the sense of what they've become. They're now the servants of God and they're members of the family of God. It is with that in mind, you'll notice a whole host of verses that highlight that very idea. In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26, "...ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ." As Paul wrote to those brethren in Galatia, we notice that they that were baptized into Christ had become children of God. They were now part of a spiritual family. The word child has reference, of course, to there's the factors of father, and then there's the children of that father. You'll notice those that are baptized are the children of God. Isn't that a wonderful concept? Isn't that extremely far-reaching and motivational? That's only the first of many others that might be mentioned. In Romans 8, verse 16, The Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So if we believe the Holy Spirit, there's no question to that fact. Those that obey the gospel and do so by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ have become members of the family of God because they've been added to that family. Not only that, the very next verse, Romans eight seventeen, goes on to describe that if we are children, we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Isn't it a sweet thing to appreciate the blessings and the beauty that attaches to inheriting? You and I, as members of the family of God, are going to inherit. Inherit a home in heaven. Inherit that marvelous and wonderful climb we call the golden strand beyond. You'll notice we look forward to inheriting, do we not? Might I suggest to you that those in the family then enjoy the beautiful attribute of fellowship. The Bible develops that in a number of ways, one of which is this. We have the wonderful opportunity to enjoy a fellowship with God Himself. I've asked you to notice a few verses that point us in that direction. The word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And as you can see, it means to share in common, to have association. It has to do with the community. Aren't you thankful that when the God of heaven in His infinite wisdom saw fit to make plans for what the church would be, He didn't organize it in a way we would be individuals in the sense we'd meander through life and never have association with anybody. We're added to a family. Someone that can encourage us, strengthen us, motivate us. Isn't it still said we rejoice with those that rejoice and we weep with the ones that weep? We edify each other and build each other up. Aren't we thankful for that? That fellowship with God maybe begins like this. On the very first day the church began, in Acts 2 verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Fellowship was a vital and integral part of the very matters of the church from day one. Fellowship with God. Maybe that fellowship is seen also, especially in relation to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, 
speaking to that congregation, Paul highlighted that they themselves were able to enjoy fellowship through Christ. You and I as Christians, every one of us, are bonded together by that marvelous blood of Christ. Our sins forgiven, welded and molded into a family of joint believers. We here constitute this congregation at Pippin. We set forth the notion of loving one another as members of this family. We exhibit brotherly love, 2 Peter 1 verse 6. You'll notice in 1 John 1 verse 3 that that fellowship with God is even expressly stated. We have fellowship with God. No simpler declarative statement could have been made. It's not that we dream about it, we have it, John said. We have fellowship with God. Now, that's not the only fellowship we enjoy. As already mentioned, at least in passing, we enjoy a fellowship with one another. This community of believers, at least here, that is the Pippin congregation, we enjoy that degree of fellowship and we so much highlight the nature of the community of believers that is you and me. John also highlights that, though, in that same passage in 1 John 1, beginning in verse 3. He says, not only do we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. We have koinonia with one another. And that fellowship is so rich and so enthralling and often so very compelling. As we sing and encourage each other, as we set before one another the proper example of righteousness, and on occasion as we even warn and rebuke one another when someone goes astray, that's not done out of an attribute of anything that's ungodly. It's done because of love. Because of that, let's close that slide. Because there's one thing it seems that accords to that fellowship that is mentioned on so many occasions. It is that idea that each one who enjoys that fellowship, of course, by the same token in that fellowship with God, understands the vital importance of obedience. We can't have fellowship with God if we don't do what He says. I can't do what I want and expect God to always accept me in fellowship. In Romans 6 verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Here were those in Rome who at some former time had been the slaves to sin. And Paul said, God be thanked that that's a part of your past now. You now have obeyed that form of doctrine delivered you. And in so doing, you have been made free from sin and become the servants of righteousness. That's characteristic of all of us as Christians. There was a time we were slaves in sin too. But we have given up that style of life. We've left that long distance in the rearview mirror. We now, of course, yearningly and longingly desire to live each and every day pleasing and acceptable to the God who loved us and sent His Son to die for us. That obedience is mentioned in 1 John 5 verse 3 like this. Speaking of that love of God, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. Sure enough, then, those that enjoy that fellowship have their, set, their sights set very clearly upon heaven. That's where we want to go. That's where we long to be. Paul, in fact, felt that way and admonished the Colossians to understand it too, didn't he? In Colossians 1.5, 
when he said, the hope of heaven is the God. The, the, the Christian hope is that hope of heaven, and that's what's revealed to us in the nature of that gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope of heaven as we proceed in that direction. This concept of fellowship as we've seen it developed on that page, fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. Let's elaborate a little bit more thoroughly then on some of the obligations and blessings that go with that fellowship. You'll notice at the very beginning, the Scriptures point out on so many occasions that wonderful attribute of edification. Now, that's a long word, but it just means to build up. It literally means nothing more than to build up. And in terms of life in Christ, we as the church build each other up. We don't march by ourselves singly without any influence on anyone else toward the day of judgment. You influence me, I influence you, we influence each other. We build each other up. Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 16 discuss that in a fair amount of detail. You'll notice that as the particular considerations of verse 11 begin, a number of workers in the church are mentioned like teachers and elders and others who are evangelists. And as all of those are described, we might ask, what's the function of each of them? The next verse makes it plain. To minister and to edify. Elders and preachers and deacons, all of us, as we work in the church, do so with the ultimate attribute, among other things, of building each other up. As we strive to do that, what we're trying to do, of course, is encourage everyone to march wholesomely toward that day of judgment so that there's the fewest number regretful on that day. Marching toward that day of judgment reminds us, in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, another obligation that's ours is to exhort one another. That word exhortation carries the idea of warning. Let us be very frank about it. As my brother or sister in Christ, if you spot something in my life that will doom my soul, I want you to tell me about it. And don't beat around the bush either. You say, what about this verse? I believe there's something amiss in your life. And if I have the right attitude, I should say, please inform me. None of us want to show up the day of judgment unprepared. And yet as brothers and sisters in Christ, we exhort one another. That's one of the things we do out of love. And as we exhort one another, we of course strive to appreciate that characteristic in which each one would ultimately then recognize the marvelous fellowship had not only with God, but of course with one another. Isn't it true that our parents, when they, in fact, as the father of a family, think about those occasions when he exhorts. A good father will correct those children. They will not be allowed to just do whatever, whenever, and however they want because he understands it's not for their well-being to do that. The father understands that they need to be corrected. They must, in fact, have limits and guidelines set forth by which they can understand what is required of them and other things are not allowed. It is with that in mind. We bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. We offer that consolation and help that is not to be found in the world. 
Beyond that, you'll notice in Romans 12, verses 9 through 12, we do so motivated not out of any jealousy, not out of any selfishness, but we do it motivated because we love each other. Let love be without dissimulation. Another long word, it just means hypocrisy. In the church, we are not play-acting. We mean business about our life in Christ. And we intend to so live in a fashion, not, not only we, but we can influence others to live in the way that they should. The Christian life is not a game. Eternity is at stake. All of eternity hangs in the balance. No wonder then we come to recognize this. What happens or what is to be done when a situation develops where one or more individuals, though once a faithful Christian, they have chosen to forfeit their fellowship with God. They have chosen to so conduct and behave themselves in a fashion that they no longer have fellowship with God and therefore they've severed their fellowship with those that believe in God, with those that are the church. Well, what's the church to do in that situation? What is the community of believers to do when that happens? It's a very good question, isn't it? And as heartbreaking as the thought is, and as sad as the circumstance is, God has not left us to wonder about it. Let's proceed then to look not only at the bottom of that slide, but to motivate it with some of the slides to follow. The first thing that we would have to say is this. It is not an arbitrary matter of no consideration. All throughout the Word of God, fellowship is to be very closely guarded. It is to be very closely watched. We might well begin in Ephesians 5.11. In the heart of the New Testament, Paul directly said, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. How plain is that? How much fellowship, Paul? He said, none. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And as you and I read that fifth chapter of Ephesians, and we look with some care at the particular sins mentioned, there's a rather extensive list, isn't there? But we can at least begin to notice that it was serious enough for the Holy Spirit through Paul to admonish a very close watch on the fellowship. That's not the only one. And if he, in 1 Timothy 5.22, as Paul addressed that preacher named Tim Timothy, wasn't it true that to, be, to him he said, do not be partakers of another man's sins. So if someone else is guilty of these behaviors, these things that are sinful, then if you and I endorse them or at least do nothing about it, we're a party to their sin. That too is a serious issue, isn't it? We're reminded through the Word of God in passages like that one as well as Romans 1 verses 31 and 32 that that issue of fellowship has serious obligations. Maybe finally in 2 John verses 9 and 10, though a one-letter, a one-chapter book, Paul, or rather John, had these interesting things to say. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. So here's an individual who has chosen to go beyond the truth of the, of the Bible, living outside that realm of safety with regard to heaven. John said, the one who has done that does not have God. Though he once did, he does not any longer. 
And not only that, he doesn't have Christ. The blessed sacrifice of the blood of Christ isn't helpful to him at that moment because he's living in defiance of it. You'll notice in the next two verses it is said, don't you bid God speed to that man. Don't you endorse what he's doing by in fact pretending that there's nothing wrong with it. With all of that said, that slide closes then by noticing some commandments that God gave. We'll only notice two at least at that point and then look at some other slides that, that develop it a little differently. In Romans 16 verse 17, near the close of the Roman letter, as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, it was to them that he said, Mark them which cause offenses and divisions contrary to the doctrine which you have received and avoid them. Now you'll notice in that were a few verbs. First is mark. You've got to identify these individuals. You've got to know who and what they are. Mark them. Mark who? Those that in fact are supporting are those that are causing these divisions and offenses. And then he says, avoid them. Now that of course could be developed in some interesting ways and you and I shall do that between today and next Sunday. But might we already notice that was a straightforward commandment. He didn't say you might think about this. He didn't say you might consider this. He said do this. In the Greek, that's an absolute commandment. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, which was the lesson text for the day, Jeremy read that to us earlier. I would invite you to consider it again. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he, which he received of us. You'll notice maybe there is no more direct statement on the subject in all the New Testament than that one. It is for that reason we're going to develop from that text beginning as follows. I'd like to make five points, five observations for the day, and again we'll pick up the list next Sunday. But here are five matters that I would wish each of us at least to consider in light of this topic before us today. This withdrawal of fellowship. You'll notice we've already seen what those commandments were in those two verses we read might immediately bring us to the first one. Infrequency. As you look back to that text in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, I would submit it would be much, it would be difficult to find any commandment of the New Testament stated any more clearly than that one. Note again how the sentence reads, We command you, brethren. Isn't it true there are so many things in the attribute of the church that you and I make conclusion of with respect to necessary inference? The Bible nowhere comes out and explicitly says it. We infer that that's the way it is because of the implications of Scripture. And that's perfectly reasonable and legitimate. But it still must be noted that when God comes right out and says something, a direct commandment, you and I are not left in any way to discuss it any further. And this particular subject is in that category. We command you, brethren. This is a direct commandment to the church in Thessalonica. And as if that wasn't enough, notice the next statement. What's the authority upon which the Holy Spirit put this? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
a direct commandment was given, and furthermore, the character of the authority upon which it was based. Can we not at least then make the observation? I suppose in this audience then there would be many of us who would never have seen a church practice withdrawal of fellowship. You might even struggle to think of more than two or three cases over the last 50 years you've known of where it's been done. One has to wonder, why has it been so infrequent? We all know of instances in when, when Christians have wandered from the fold of faith and this fellowship was never practiced. Why not? Maybe there are several considerations, but you'd have to wonder about the vitality or the reasonability of any of them in light of the commandment. Might we at least say this? The fact of its infrequency does not offer reason for not doing it because the Bible says it has to be done. If it's to be done as God would have it done. So what about point number two? One of the next observations we would have to make is that there's bound to be pain involved in any withdrawal of fellowship. We know that. If the person who in fact is living in that fashion, if he or she has any sensibility about them, it's bound to be painful to them. But surely to the loved ones, the church, the family of God, it is very painful to it. It's no fun to have to do that. It's no fun to have to engage in this withdrawing of fellowship, is it? Think again about a parent. Again, if any parent is as he ought to be, it's not fun to whip your child. It's not an enjoyable thing, but you know it's for his good. And you know it's because you love him that it has to be done. And so it is in the church. So it is in the church. It's not fun. Tears are bound to be shed. It's a sorrowful thing when someone is living a life whereby withdrawing is an appropriate thing and they won't repent because you know they're lost. You know they're lost. The pain of it maybe is highlighted in the principles we find even in the Old Testament. In Proverbs 19, 18, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul despair of his crying. You might remember sometimes when dad whipped you. It brought some tears to you. And again, your father in love didn't just simply stop that and say everything's all right. He still knew that there was a great lesson to be taught. Even though it's now hindsight, wouldn't you say you're now thankful that he did what he did? I'm sure we each, if we're honest, would be quick to make a statement like that. We also see in Proverbs 13, 24, spare the rod and spoil the child. Well, we might also say then in regard to church discipline, if one were just to choose to ignore it, this one, this person, this individual is living in a lost condition and we, aren't, we don't love him enough to do something about it. We don't love this person, man or woman, enough to try to reach them with the gospel to try to help them see the error of their way. Pain, there's bound to be. That's just the nature of discipline, isn't it? But maybe in the third case, you might at least ponder, well, what about that state of affairs without discipline? We've seen then in the family, if a parent, if parents choose not to discipline, we all recognize that more likely than not, 
those children are going to grow up thinking they're the privileged ones and they won't have much respect for authority, be it in the school, be it in the home, be it anywhere else, even in the church. It is in the home, you see, that they come to appreciate the faithfulness and fidelity of discipline. In Proverbs 29, verses 15 and 17, we have even on that occasion a couple of statements reminding us about what happens in the home. A child left without discipline is a child that will bring shame to his mother. Isn't that true? He'll bring a bad consideration of shame on what the family has stood for, what they have lived in fact to be in the church. This matter of discipline takes us to two final comments of the day today. Point number four. What is the nature of disfellowship? What is the nature of withdrawing fellowship? This perhaps is one of the most misunderstood elements and topics of this entire subject. So it seems to me very worthy of, of considering it is with a fair amount of emphasis. Again, what is the nature? What is accomplished by virtue of it? Now, may I say that in many ways, next Sunday we'll try to build the details of how it's done. But at least, what is it? First thing to notice is, withdrawing fellowship does not condemn the person from whom the fellowship is withdrawn. That person is already lost by the way he or she is living. The withdrawing of fellowship is not a statement that makes that person lost at that point. That person's already lost. The withdrawing of fellowship is involving a situation when a person refuses to repent. A person in sin will not repent. They know they're in sin. It's been brought to their attention. They're living in a lost condition, but they refuse to change. They refuse to do that which the Bible commands. They have long since apparently forfeited the desire to do that which they once appreciated. Again, when a congregation withdraws fellowship, it's not that at that point they then move that person from another statement into a place of being lost. The person is lost after they've been withdrawn from, just like they're lost before it. That's what the disfellowshipping does not do. But you'll notice in light of that, it is a critical matter for us to consider what is the attitude of the church in this. It is not the business of the church to in fact make statements or conclusions relative to their own petty preferences. This matter of fellowship is on the basis of Scripture. Remember, it's God that has commanded it. It is not the congregation's purview to do it if they like or not do it. If they're to be as God would have them be, when those conditions are met, it should be done. The attitude should be one highlighted in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember the scene on that occasion. The church in Corinth. The church in Corinth. They were facing a circumstance in which one of their members, an individual, was living in fornication. On that particular case, it happened to be his father's wife. You'll notice the church responded like this. They gloried in it. They were a bit puffed up about it. They apparently were under the consideration, well, what he does doesn't affect me. Sorrowfully, that maybe is his choice. 
and they appeared to somewhat glory in their own knowledge of the situation, but they didn't do anything more about it. Paul directly told them twice in that chapter, your glorying is not good. And he then told them, you must do this. You've got to withdraw from that one. Now you'll notice that their attitude was not motivated by the fact they had a personal vendetta against him. That's not it. That's far from it. The fact is he's lost and he's going to go to hell if he keeps living like that. And the motivation is we're trying to save that one who is lost. And there appears to be one last thing, one final matter the church has at its disposal in order to try to shake the thoughts of that one up. And it's withdrawing a fellowship. You might notice in light of that, that then you could ask questions. So what are the sins of which a person would be guilty that perhaps would then be appropriate for the subject of disfellowship? Well, you'll notice the New Testament lists a number of them. Again, that makes one wonder, what about the infrequency with which disfellowshipping has been practiced over the centuries, in fact, over the, certainly the last few decades, when there are so many sins mentioned in the New Testament, which again, we should be quick to say, as long as a person will repent of a sin, the church has no reason to withdraw from him or her. Because once they repent of it and then are made right with God, the church with open arms will welcome them back. The issue is, what if a person won't repent? What if they choose to live lost and choose, in fact, to bring disgrace and reproach upon themselves and over the blessed church of which Jesus purchased with His blood? Well, you'll notice at the bottom, in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, we have this statement. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. So first, if a person teaches and endorses false doctrine, Paul there directly commands, you've got to withdraw from that person. So there's one of our first explicit statements. But that's by no means the only one. What about those who promote factions and divisions? Suppose an individual came and placed membership here and soon it was discovered that this person seems to have a talent for stirring up trouble. Suddenly there's disharmony and disunity and one group is against another. Our elders would have every right to proceed if that person won't repent to disfellowship that person. You'll notice in Titus 3 verse 10, after the first and second admonition, you reject a factious man. So notice, he's given opportunity, first and second admonition, but if he won't repent, you've got to withdraw from him. Thirdly, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul makes a listing and he gives that commandment like this. It's that same verse that we read earlier this morning. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Every brother that walketh disorderly is to be withdrawn from. Now what about this phrase, to walk disorderly? The Greek word basically at its meaning has the consideration of a regiment, an infantry if you please. And we've all seen those in the military, they march in step. 
the foot of every one of them hits the ground at almost exactly the same time. They are marching in step and in sync. That's the whole idea there. When there's one not marching along in that direction of faithfulness with the others, you've got to withdraw from him or her. Withdraw from everyone that chooses to walk disorderly. You might notice then, Paul gives an extensive list of sins that would be characteristic of walking disorderly. Fornication. If a member chooses to live in fornication, the church would be under obligation to again not just allow that to happen without any recourse of action, because again the person's lost. Surely we have no pleasure in anybody lost and going to hell. Even God doesn't enjoy it. Didn't He say in Ezekiel 33, 11, He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So, aside from that, you might find it interesting. And this listing, by the way, is found in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. A whole list of sins for which withdrawal of fellowship is appropriate. You'll notice covetousness is one of them. I might submit to you that one maybe is a sermon by itself. For there are a lot of things that you and I can directly see. We can see when a man's living in fornication. How do you see covetousness? When you look upon someone, how could you determine whether they're covetous or not? Well, may I say, apparently there would be evidences or manifestations or symptoms by which their life could be characteristic of covetousness. If you see that, Paul says you've got to withdraw from them. Idolatry. A person given to idolatry, again, has to be withdrawn from. A reviler. Now that Greek word literally means one who abuses another by way of speech. If there's a person that's guilty of slander and continues to do that and won't repent, you've got to withdraw from them. Doesn't that paint a picture of the seriousness of our speech and to use it correctly? Not only that, a drunkard person who likes alcohol socially. The church cannot endorse that. The church cannot defend it. And if that becomes known and that person won't repent of it, you've got to withdraw from them because they're lost. Every one of these individuals, the one guilty of covetousness, idolatry, fornication, reviling, every one of them's lost if they won't repent. The list goes on. An extortioner. Paul says if there's a person, again, guilty of that but won't repent, you've got to withdraw from them. What is extortion? The word literally means to be a swindler, a robber, a purloiner, the one who takes advantage of another and takes things from them that don't belong to him. You've got to withdraw from that person if he or she won't repent. We've seen then a listing of these sins. Doesn't it remind us that the whole reason for discussing all of this is still the very thing we mentioned at the first? The church is not in the business of just picking out somebody because of what they choose to do. The church is interested in this because they're lost if they keep doing that. And it's out of love that the church proceeds to do what it does in this matter of disfellowshipping, hopeful that they'll come to their senses. Just like that prodigal in Luke 15 who found himself on the verge of the pig pen. And he came to himself, Luke 15, 24. 
And then he remembered they got it a lot better at Dad's house, and I've got here. It's our hope then that anybody, maybe you or me as we think about the list, if you're starting to think along those lines, the church loves you. And in that love, they're going to do something about it. They're going to strive to motivate you to realize that if you continue along that path, you're going to end up lost in hell. This fellowship then is ultimately an act of love because you love the soul of that one. As you and I come to the close of that slide, and quite frankly to the close of this opening lesson, it brings us to think in summary about these things. Fellowship is a tremendous gift. It really is. But along with it comes a remarkable responsibility. And in part, we notice that responsibility means that that fellowship must be very carefully considered and closely guarded. And the closeness of that leads us to notice that although it's true that withdrawing a fellowship appears a rather infrequent thing, it's not because it's not in the Bible. And furthermore, we've highlighted the fact that it's a painful matter. It has to be. But without discipline, what a shameful thing ultimately develops. Because isn't it true, the whole nature of this fellowship is the person is lost. They have already consigned themselves to that fact, and so far they haven't changed. And the final analysis is, of course, due to sin. Sins of which a person won't repent. Sins of which a person to this point turns his back upon the nature of the very blood of Christ and says, I'm not interested and I don't care anymore. The church out of love can't let that proceed. But in any effort available to them, have got to try to wake the person up. And the disfellowship or the withdrawing of that fellowship is the seemingly the last straw at which that's possible. Today, as we close this lesson, and again, at least preparing our mind to continue it next Sunday, we're going to think again about some practical issues concerning the subject. And maybe you've already thought of many of them, and I expect we'll address all of them at that time. Today, as you think about your relationship with God, is it a good one? Are you in harmony? Are you a member of His family? If you're not, there's a serious and eternal problem. Jesus died that you might be saved. Why do you reject it? Why do you leave it at bay? He loved you enough to shed His blood for you. And the church at Pippin loves you enough that we want to do anything we can to encourage you to be faithful. The invitation is now extended if there's one or more in the audience and you're not right with God. Maybe it's because you've never become a Christian. Never yet have you been immersed into Christ. We'd be delighted to help you and rejoice with you today. You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you have known the joy of that, but you have since become unfaithful. You have begun to live in a way that has brought reproach and shame on you and upon the blessed Savior that died for you. Think about the proverbial tears streaming down Jesus' face this very day if you're an unfaithful Christian. He died that you would be saved, and yet you knew that salvation at one time, and now you have wandered far from it. We would be happy to pray to God for you. We'd be happy to, in fact, along with you, confess those sins to God, and He's promised to forgive them if you will but confess them to Him and beseech our prayers to Him. If we could be of help to you today along that line, we'd be delighted to help you. 
as we close this lesson today, let's extend this invitation by simply saying, if there's a way we can help anyone in the audience in these ways, don't delay, but come now. While together we stand and while we sing.